We're in John 21. And uh, somebody had said, we're never going to get out of John. And I said, well, we, we will one day. And we're getting closer. And uh, I want to talk to you today. And I thought it was apropos in this, uh, this kind of uh, setting, if you will, uh, as we look at John chapter 21. <clears throat> um, it's interesting here. And this is the theme that I want to work off of going back to go forward, <clears throat> going back to go forward. That, that, that's kind of an interesting, if you will, idea that uh, sometimes uh, we, uh, we understand, like, like this weekend. Uh, this weekend, uh, we're remembering the sacrifice of many who gave their lives uh, for freedom or those who served. Uh, maybe they didn't have to give, as Abraham Lincoln said, the uh, last measure of devotion, uh, but they, they gave their service. Uh, they were separated from their families, and, and we remember that. And I think that part of that, the reason is, is we remember, we go back and remember that so that as we go forward, a couple of things, we don't forget the sacrifice that people have made, right? I mean, as we, we have a holiday here and uh, it, we, we ought to be thinking about going back to think, okay, what, what have people done for us? So that as we go forward, I, I thought in some ways we go back in our thinking so that we remember the cost and the sacrifice that, that people made for our freedom that we enjoy today that sometimes we take for granted, don't we? And, and so we go back and remember that so that we can go forward and be grateful and be thankful and honor those who have served. Uh, uh, we sometimes go back, if you will, and remember this weekend, this date, uh, so that we remember the terrible costs of war and we go forward seeking peace. I know I've talked to several people in the military and they say uh, when, when they think about it, uh, military people are often the last people who want to go to war because they know the cost and they know the sacrifice. And so sometimes it's important for us to go back so we can go forward for us to remember, for us to recall. And that'll be something you probably will do with your family this weekend, I hope. And uh, we'll do it and we'll remember. My dad that was a veteran will go at, uh, by his grave and, and we'll remember. Uh, I, I was looking at a picture the other day that made maybe some of the understanding of myself. I, I didn't realize this the other day, but I have a picture of an atomic bomb blowing off in the Atoll Islands at Kwajalein. And that's where my dad was stationed. That may be why I'm the way I am. <laughs> it was incredible. And then I thought, wait a minute, my dad was there in 1950, whatever. So we remember, we remember those things. Uh, it's interesting in the gospel of John here. Uh, notice here in John 20, we're, we're going to finish up here on this. We, we finished this two weeks ago. It says in uh, verse 30 of chapter 20, therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, it's interesting in that passage there, and I, this is on your handout, I think, under the idea of context, is this. Some have suggested that that is the end of the Gospel of John. That that's where it ended. I mean, that he, what it, it's his purpose statement. He said, these things were written so that you would know that with these signs that Jesus is the Christ and then believing in his name, you'd have life. And some have suggested that's the end of John. That actually 21 is an addition. Somebody came along later and wrote this story and put this in here as an addition. And of course, if you've ever studied uh, what we call textual criticism, I'm, I don't know too many people have, but if, if you're that weird, you know, and you uh, like to do that, there's a great book if you're interested. It's called the, the, the Compilation, the Corruption, and the Restoration of the Biblical Text by Bruce Metzger. If you're ever having trouble sleeping, get that book. 
It will put you dead out. Uh, but this idea that, you know, it, it seems this would be an ending. Now, this is interesting here because I think I not only want to teach the Bible, but I want to teach how to study the Bible to you. Somebody said to me one time, they said, just watching you has helped me know how to study the Bible. And I'm thinking, does that mean what I'm not doing? <laughs> anyway, so this looks like the end. And yet I think John is doing this. He's going back so that all these guys can go forward. Now, let me give you some evidence on why I think this is not the ending. Uh, if you look here, just go to your table of contents and find the book of 1 John. 1 John. That's uh, toward the back, or as the British love to say, and others, 1 John. I'll leave that alone. <clears throat> 1171 in my Bible. 1 John. This is the same author, and this is what I would say is more stylistic than content. There I don't think that someone came along and wrote 21 and just attached it. Notice here in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, if you're in the fifth chapter, John has been writing a long time ago, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, that sounds like what we just read in 20. These things we've written so that you'll know. This is stylistic in terms of John's way of writing. Now, again, if you're ever concerned in a book of the Bible that you're reading or studying and something isn't clear, consult the other books by the same author. Don't just go running around all the books of the Bible. Go to the same author. Chris and I, uh, in our class on how to study the Bible, whenever we teach people how to do word studies, we, we are very careful to say to them that if you don't understand how a word is being used in a book, you then, for instance, in the Gospel of John, you would go to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation before you go anywhere else because you always consult the author's other works first. Because if it's a stylistic matter or if it's a matter of one's own word choice, and we're going to see that again later in this chapter, it's very important that you consult the author's work. So I would say just as in 1st John, in 13 there, it sounds like that's the end. These things I've written to you so that you may believe in the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. That's it. No. John then thinks of something else that he needs to add. So in terms of context, I would say uh, in one sense that this is not uh, good evidence that this is just an addition, that somebody just came and tacked verse chapter 21 on at the end after this purpose statement is ended in 20. And again, that may or may not be of concern to you. I'm a little weird. I'm out of class right now. I've got a lot of time to think. So... Work with me. So we begin then in chapter 21. And after these things, Jesus manifested himself again. I'm in verse 1 of 21. To the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or that's the Sea of Galilee. And he made himself known in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus. We just saw him in the earlier chapter. We sometimes call him Doubting Thomas, which I think is unfair. And Nathaniel of Canaan of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of the disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll also come with you. They went out all night or got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now, Greek's a funny language. It can answer itself, and the answer is no, we don't. You don't have any fish, do you? No, we do not. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, 
and you'll find a catch. Now, I'm just going to draw your attention to this because you probably already are. We'll come back to this. This sounds um, interestingly familiar, doesn't it? If you know anything about the Gospels, if you've read the Gospels, this sounds kind of familiar. We're going to look at that. So they cast, and they, when they were not able to haul in because of the number of fish, therefore the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. I mean, I just, just think, now just get in, your, get in your imagination here just for a minute. You've been fishing, nothing. Somebody on the beach calls out to you and says, throw it on the other side over here. And as soon as they drag it up, John, this is who John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he never calls himself, never, never draws attention to himself. He said, it's the Lord. Can you imagine that? This sort of reenactment that they've experienced some years before. Notice what happens here. Then Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards, and were dragging the net full of fish. So when they got there on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. Now, you need to underline that word, because uh, if we get there today, or we finish it, I told Rick, we might, we may not, who knows. <laughs> a fire had already been placed, and fish placed upon it, and bread and Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught now. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now I want to stop right there because we're going to try to work our way through this. This event that John is bringing up now after what might be considered the theological end of his book where he says these things have been written so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ and in having life in his name brings this now to a point of bringing it to the story of these disciples. And it seems to me that in some sense or another, John is going back in this last event after giving you the purpose of his book to discover and understand some things that have happened to these disciples. Now, again, get the picture. They're on the Sea of Galilee. This is a place they were originally from. Capernaum is this area off Tiberias. It's called the town of Peter, where they boated and fished. So I wanna just say to this sometimes, here are these guys that, for any lack of word, look what it says, when Peter had said to them, I'm gonna go fishing. Now, look at that, I just think, uh, What's going on here is it seems to me that Peter, in some sense or another, is saying, I'm going to go do what I know to do. I mean, we, they've seen Jesus once, some of them twice, but there's been no sense of necessarily of what's going to happen here. And so in order for Peter to go forward, he goes back. Maybe John's point here, and so I want to, I want to ask you to consider this, that going back to what is known, going back to what is known, to go back and to go forward to what is known. It's interesting here. Uh, you look at this. Peter said, I'm going fishing, and they go out and get into the boat. Now, the, uh, in verse 3, the definite article there, the boat. Um, we could make some of that, and it could be just simply when you go fishing, you get into the boat. Or, as some have suggested, what this suggests is that Peter and these men go back to fishing, which was their business. 
It's interesting here that I want to suggest to you that it's a possibility that when we read the Gospels and we read that the disciples left to follow Jesus, they didn't leave their business. They didn't sell it. They didn't end with it. They just periodically would go back and forth to do that. I, I wrote in my notes here, it seems to me the Gospel reveals that these men followed Jesus, but it's likely they did not sell their businesses. They went back to the boat. They didn't, you know, you don't go to the sea, sea of Tiberias or the, the Sea of Galilee and decide to go to fishing and say, I'd like to rent a boat. People own the boats. People are in the business of fishing. And it's of interest to me here that one of the assumptions is, is that we don't realize that maybe sometimes in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of going forward, that we go back to what we know. That we go back to what we know. Do, do we sometimes think that the following Jesus and the call to follow Jesus and to go forward means nothing of the past? To me, that doesn't make any sense. I don't see it as script, biblical or to just kind of have to cut off everything about my past. I was thinking about this because what, what if, what if, I'm just, I'm just asking you to consider this with me. When they say we're going fishing, it could be that sometimes to go forward, we have to go back because these guys may be in what my dad would always call the paralysis of analysis. What are we going to do? You ever met people like this that when things happen, they get stuck because they have to analyze everything. They have to understand everything. They can't go forward. It's just a matter of, man, this could happen or that could happen or this could happen or that. Could. Maybe these guys go back to what they know because they're paralyzed with the present. See, to go forward, sometimes you have to go back. And this idea of getting stuck here, they're, they're not able to know what does the future hold? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Maybe just go back to what you know. My dad taught me to drive years ago. And uh, I'll never forget this. We had an old green pickup, a 67 Chevy. Anybody remember those, that ugly green, kind of sea mist, kind of green? I remember driving that truck in southeast Texas in a hurricane one time. It wasn't a big hurricane, but I wanted ice cream. So I got in the truck, went, had ice cream. Strange breed down there. But I remember my dad teaching me to drive that thing. And the first time we were out, we're sitting there. This is long before power steering, okay? Anybody remember those days? Tried. I was by the other day, uh, we were out at uh, Dick Greenley's property and, and Dave Plemons, we were out there and, and uh, Terry's dad has an old John Deere tractor. No power sound. I was like, it takes a real man to drive that thing, you know? So I remember sitting in that truck and we're getting ready to leave out of this parking lot area. And I start doing this. <clears throat> turn that wheel. And my dad said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm turning the wheel so we can pull out of here. He said, son, all the weight of that truck is on that axle. You know what to do. What, what, what do you do? Huh? Start rolling a little bit, Right? Get the weight off of that axle, start rolling a little bit. He said, and all of a sudden that, that truck starts turning really easily. I've never forgotten that lesson. I've never forgotten that just sitting somewhere, staying somewhere, not moving and trying to turn things is sometimes almost impossible. Sometimes what we have to do is just get moving. To go forward, we go back. To say, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna go back here to what I know. 
I'm going to go back to what I know. I know how to fish. I know how to deal with this. I, I know that, that the future may be unclear and I'm not sure what to do to go forward, but I know what I can do to go back. And that seems, I know, crazy to us because we always think as Americans and as Christians, everything's always going forward. But sometimes maybe we need to go back. Maybe if you're in a place in your life where you're saying, you know what? I don't know that much about the future. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure. Why don't you look back and say, what do I know? Where have I been? Soren Kierkegaard, is a brilliant scholar, always said that life is always understood backwards. Did you, have you noticed that? That... That, that whenever we look back sometimes and go back to what we know, we say, oh, there's where God is. That's where he's been leading me. That's where he's been guiding me. We, we, don't, we rarely understand life forward. We most often understand it backwards. And we go back to go forward. What is it in your life? What is it in my life when you look back and say, you know, I may be in a place in my life where I'm not sure what the future looks like. I'm not sure where to go. I'm not sure what to do. Look back and see where God has been. These guys go back to fishing. I, I, I wonder if they have this paralysis of analysis. Another question, I'm just trying to think this through. I wonder if they have the despair of confusion. They're confused. I, I think we would all be. There's a despair sometimes that comes in confusion. Where are you? What's going on? What's the future? What's the next step? And sometimes we don't know what that is. And these guys are just saying, let's go fish. Now notice it, we'll, we'll see, it must be okay because Jesus met them there. He didn't berate them or get mad at them. He met them there when they went back to what they knew. That when they went back to go forward. See, sometimes despair or confusion or, or sorrow can cause us to say, I don't know what the future is. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Go back. Go back to what you know. Go, go back to where you know God has led you. Go back to where you know God has been present with you. You know, um, I, I remember uh, at some point when I was uh, in seminary, um, um, that uh, I had a friend I met. His name was Roger Reynolds. He was a CFO of a bank there in Lexington. And uh, Roger uh, was just a guy that I kind of connected with and found that we had several things in common. Uh, you know, we were just similar in, in several ways. And uh, I remember uh, as we uh, got, became friends and did things together that Roger had a statement uh, one time that I thought, wow, I've never forgotten that. He said when he gets to a place in his life where he's confused... Or he gets into a place when he's in despair. Or when he gets in a place where he's depressed. He had this image. He said, it's, it's like in my life, I'm, I, I'm on this rope. Maybe I'm climbing, you know, I'm climbing the rope. And he said, what I do is when I get to that situation, I just tie a knot in the rope and hold on. Yeah, I've never forgotten that idea. I just tie a knot and hang on. I mean, thinking about this is this. You see, sometimes you've got to go back to what you know. For instance, I may not know what's going on right now, and I may not understand the future about everything going on, but there's some things I do know that I know from behind me. 
I, I guess I'd say it this way. What, what about uh, this understanding of, of maybe deciding to go back to what do you know? What, say it this way. What do you know about Jesus and God from your past? This is a question. What do you know from your past? He's faithful. What else? His timing is perfect. But we don't see that in front of us, do we, Luann? That's again where Kirk Kierkegaard said we see it this way. So he's faithful. His timing is perfect. What else? What? When? Huh? He's good, right? He's good. You know, what is it you, when you go back and say, well, no, wait a minute, let me, I'm not sure about the future. What, what do I know from back here? Anybody? What else? What do you know from back here? He'll never leave you. Huh? Comforter? Yeah. What? Protector? Yeah. He works in amazing ways you wouldn't imagine. Now, let, let, me, let me press this a little bit here. Anybody, when you look back, say, he didn't change the circumstance, but he gave me the strength to get through it. Okay. I mean, I'm glad all this, he's good, he's faithful, he's comforting. Come on, some of us would say what? Huh? Brings us through it. It, it. The circumstance didn't change, the situation didn't change, nothing got better. But he was with me. And I can see that now. There were times even when that, that was God, I didn't even know he was with me. Right? I mean, come on, let, let's be honest here. I mean, this is all true. He's faithful, he's good, he's merciful, he's kind, his, his timing is perfect like that. But we kind of kick the rock over a little bit. Some of us has to say, hey, he didn't change anything, he didn't change the circumstance. But he assured me he was with me. Now, I don't, I don't know how that happened. It may be you had a feeling, or, you know, I don't often have, I told my students, I have a feeling, it's right here. And sometimes I feel it. <laughs> but sometimes God does that through other people or through other circumstances. So sometimes to go forward, you got to go what? Back. Here's what I want to ask you to consider this week. What if this week you get moving with something? Maybe you're stuck. You don't know what the future is. You're not sure what's going to happen. You're kind of like these disciples. You're just, I'm going fishing. That's what I know to do. Get moving with something that's healthy. <laughs> I'm not just saying do anything, but I'm saying look back in your past and say, where do I see God in my life? Where do I see him working in my life? Where do I see him involved in my life? And I'm going to get involved there. Don't be like that, like me driving that truck, trying to turn that wheel while it's just sitting there. Get involved. Do something. Or, or, if you make a list of truths that you know about Jesus and hang on. Something you know. I'm not talking about something you know intellectually only. I'm talking about something when you look back in your life, you say, I know this. Okay? So to go forward, sometimes we go, does that make sense? That's what these guys did. Again, we have this kind of Americanized Christianity that Christianity is always going forward. There's always progress. You know, I, th I sometimes think people think that the Christian life is just this one steady climb like this. I think, man, that hasn't been my experience. 
There have been times when I've had to say, now, wait a minute, I've got to stop right here and look back. Where in the world are you? How in the world are you? Okay? Abraham and Jacob had the same experience. Yep. Yeah. Let me say for the recording, Walt is, is telling us that Abraham and Jacob had the same experience that they had to go back, back to the altar that they were at. So, so this is not uncommon. But I think sometimes our sense of progress as Christians, that we think it's all got to be forward when sometimes it's go back. Okay? Second here. Uh, I want to I ask you to consider this. Going back to go forward to the place you started following Jesus. This is fascinating to me in 4 to 8. As you'll recall, this is the exact set of circumstances that these guys experienced in Luke 5. They'd been fishing all night. You can go back and read it. They, they'd been fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus says to them, hey... Oh, your net over here. You know, sometimes, sometimes we need to go back to where we started following Jesus. What was it like? What were the circumstances? I remember when I was a pastor in Lake Charles before I moved here to come teach some years ago. I remember it was having some difficulty about where I thought the church was going to go. They weren't obeying me. It was terrible. <laughs> I just told them, you just, I just want to be church king. That's all, you know, just let me tell you what to do and it'll be great. Not so much, but they just weren't obeying me. And I remember, you know, it got to the point where I was confused a little bit, you know, and I, and I wasn't sure about the future. And I thought, God, I thought you called me here and to be a pastor. And I thought you called me here to serve. I was pretty clear on that, but now I'm confused, troubled. And I remember in our living room, in that house we lived in, I remember it seemed the Spirit began to just kind of guide me to, to say, go back. And I'm thinking, okay, what do you mean go back? Go back to when you first met me and began to serve me. Why'd you do it, Cliff? I said, well, you know, I started following you because... In some sense, or I'm thinking now, I, because I, I knew I couldn't lead my own life. I, I, really, when I, when I followed, became a follower of Jesus, it wasn't really hell or that kind of stuff. It was the idea of I had no purpose. And I just couldn't see it. I, I'm kind of wired like that. I just, it wasn't just any, the fear of hell. I mean, I wasn't excited about that place, but you know, it was purpose. And, and, and I remember that was the, the driving force. Is there, there's got to be more than going to work and making money and doing this kind of stuff. And then, and then, and then I thought this. And you know what? I, I began to serve you because I loved you. And I began to serve you because I wanted to help others. And he said, well, what's happening now is you're serving me to get famous. You're serving me because you want people to think you're smart. Because I remember Becky saying to me, when I, when I left Houston, uh, where Wayne Bolenbark and I served together, when I left Houston, we, that church was about 1,000, you know, around there. That was a big church back in 1984. Constituency. And I remember uh, we were uh, driving in the truck from Lexington after seminary, and we're 
going to seminary and I'm driving the truck. I'd, I'd work for UPS, so I know how to drive a truck. And Becky said, be careful. And I said, hey, get in the floorboard or put on a blindfold, one or the other. One of the two, leave me alone. Come on, I can do this. I've driven a truck before, right? Get a blindfold or get in the floorboard. One of the two, I can't take all this. You're scaring me to death. So we're driving along and Becky said to me, because this is a church about 150 people and I'm a seminary graduate, so I know everything, right? Yeah, that was a wonderful delusion for a while. It served well. And I remember her saying to me, we're on the highway there, Interstate 10, right past the, I can say it now, the Atchafalaya Basin. When I went across it, it was off, off, yeah, yeah. I had, you can't, those Cajun words, you cannot pronounce them. They're unpronounceable. But we're driving along and she said, hey, what do you think it's going to be like pastoring this church? You know, in, in Louisiana. <laughs> I said this. This again. I said, Beck, I can pastor this church with one arm tied behind my back. Yeah, for the next six months, it was like this. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think I had any arms. And it was painful. And I remember the Lord taking me back to say, we got to get this straight. Why are you serving me? And I said, Lord, it was because I loved you and I wanted to help others. And I wanted to be of some value to people. He said, you got it all twisted up, Cliff. It's about you now. You see, sometimes we have to go back to where we first met him. Jesus is setting up a situation where these guys are reliving their calling. You can go read it in Luke 5. What's fascinating to me, what's fascinating to me is all of the circumstances are the same except for one. Notice here, it says again when they, the fish and they get it and John says, it's the Lord. Man, can you imagine that? If you're looking on that beach, you see this figure, he's speaking to you, you haven't recognized his voice, I guess. But because this event has happened before, exactly the same way, John says, I recognize this one. It's the Lord. And, and the Bible says here that Peter put, he'd been stripped down for work and he threw himself into the sea. He's not waiting for that boat. He's not waiting to drag those fish in. He's not waiting to, to get up on the beach. He's hit the water. Do you remember what happened in Luke 5 when this same thing happened? Peter falls down in front of Jesus and says these words, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Go read it in Luke 5. When this same event happened before, he said, depart. Ekbalo is the strong word like leave. Leave me alone here, please. Because I'm a sinful man. What's happened here? Had Peter 
sinned since he met Jesus? Had Peter failed in any measurable way? He denied him completely. Can I just suggest this? I've, I've tried to meditate on this. and Before this, Peter was related to God through religion and ritual. And his self of sense of sinfulness, his sense of failure was heightened by religion and ritual. And that's what it does. I mean, that's what religion and ritual does. It tries to help you realize where you're messed up. By this time, Jesus or Peter had entered into relationship. He knew this person. This God that he had known by rule and ritual now had become a person. He'd eaten with him. He'd been with him. He'd been in some sense restored up to that point. But now he had left the rules and the ritual to the person of Jesus. Something has to change here because he has no sense of shame. He has no sense of fear. He hits the water like never before. So I'm thinking as I'm working through this myself, which one of Peter am I? Which one am I? Am I the Peter that when Jesus does something wonderful or Jesus comes on the scene, I'm so sin conscious and so aware of my sin and so aware of my failure that my initial default response is say, hey, leave, please, I'm, I'm too bad. Or is my position now that when Jesus comes on the scene, the same exact circumstances that now when he comes on the scene, I run to him. I read an author the other day that said, our sin and failure is not to cause us to run from God, but to run to him. Her name is Jan Johnson. She's an incredible writer in spiritual formation. And I read that and I thought, yeah, that, that, that's the idea that, that for some of us, that when Jesus comes on the scene because of our sin, our failure, we run from him until we can get it fixed and straightened out and ironed out and worked out. Then we'll come back, right? Instead of, our failure, our sin, whatever it is, causes us to run to him. It's a, it's a whole different approach to life. That This happens because they go back, if you will, to the place where they started following him. Can you remember that place in your life? I'm not suggesting that you have to have a place and a time. You know, I grew up with people that said, you know, if you don't know the moment you were saved and where you were and all that, you're not saved. And I thought, that's a bunch of baloney. But could you remember that time? The time that you knew Jesus loved you, not the whole world, but you. Remember the time, can you go back to that to say, you know what, I don't know what the future is. I'm not completely sure about everything, but... But I remember I can go back in the past to where I met him. And to remember. I, I remember that. It was a February evening in Southeast Texas, Beaumont, Texas. Me and two other friends. Who we came to the place of saying, Jesus, we want to follow you. We're ready. Are you like Peter in Luke 5? Today? 
Or are you like Peter in John 20? And so Peter runs to Jesus. Not, or swims to him. <laughs> he doesn't run. He ran one time on the water. I forgot about that one. <laughs> he swims to him. The other disciples come. And when they get on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. Now, I want to ask you to consider this. When I was working on this, I thought of a song that Andre Crouch, anybody remember him? Remember him? He wrote a song called Take Me Back. What I want you to do is I want you to the best of your ability and memory. I want you, as you go forward now in your life, I want you to remember, I want you to go back to when you first began to believe in him when you first began to trust him. I want you to remember that place and that time. That song uh, has uh, in some ways been a kind of a touchstone for me. I don't know about you. Tell me, where was it? Where was it? Take me back. Where was it? Church camp. Church camp, Where? Falls Creek. Where? Billy Graham Crusade. Where? In your living room. Wow. A lot of different places, isn't it? Take me back. Remember that time? Here Jesus is taking these guys back so he can work this failure out of them. This is like a second chance. A second chance calling. This is a second opportunity for him to take them back to the place where he had originally called them in this spectacular failure that they'd all had, that now Jesus, Jesus is making a new place for them in a new way. See, sometimes to go forward, we got to go back. Sometimes if you're facing an uncertain reality or future or wherever you are in your life, I, I don't know. It could be health, it could be job, it could be family, it could be any, any, any number of things. To me, it seems useful and helpful for us to go back to where we first started following him. I, I'm, I've always been amazed at this passage. It says here that they, Peter, when he jumps in the water, and then they drag it up, and there are 153 fish. <laughs> now, there's all kinds of speculation, and preachers and leaders can get crazy with this. There's not, you know, there was one person who believed that there were, one, one Roman historian that said there were 153 different types of fish in the world. How he knew that, I don't know, because Google wasn't there yet, so there's no way for it. What is, what is fascinating, though, is the precision that John records this. The precision that he wants the reader to understand. That this is an actual event. This isn't something in somebody's mind or something in somebody's theoretical understanding. This is an actual event where Jesus comes to restore and bring these people back to where he first called them. And then in that process... He begins the process on this last one, and we're, we're not going to have time today. Go back to God, or go back to go forward to the place of failure. Now, Rick, I've promised Rick we're going to deal with this, and we will. But notice here on verse 9, it says, So when they got out of the boat on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. 
Um, this is interesting because in Israel, I mentioned, I think I've been there a couple of times, or the most beaches, fires are built from what? Huh? Wood, driftwood or, or wood or driftwood or your competitor's boat. <laughs> if you can get to it fast enough, right? This is, this is very unusual. This statement, and John again, because he's precise, 153 fish, where were we? On the Sea of Galilee. Very, very precise. And it's interesting because, again, as you study the Bible, you see a term like this. Maybe, the, maybe that didn't strike you. But there are only three places the word charcoal shows up, and they're all in John's writings. Revelation, here, you might remember, there's one other place. Remember that? What? The night before the crucifixion, John 18. What happened around that charcoal fire? Denial. It's only the place that occurs. It's very unusual for any kind of statement to be made about a charcoal fire on a beach. This is intentional. And it's precision that John is working with. Now, we're not going to have time to unpack it. I won't let you go today. But I'm, we're going to come back to this. It's helpful to set up, in my judgment, if this is going backwards to go forward, this makes more sense now We'll explain it. I feel like I'm as the world turns or the day for tomorrow. I'm sorry I know those soap operas, but I'm going to leave you hanging. This will be instructive as to why Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? He's going back at a charcoal fire so Peter can go where? Forward. And this is necessary. And I'm going to try to explain this because there's, even in reading commentaries of the day, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at him. That's not true. You know, of course, nobody answered back. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just trying, I'm going to try to work you through this from the standpoint of John's language and John's vocabulary as to what this means. Does it mean that sometimes to go forward, we do have to face our failure. I would say it this way, and I, we'll, we'll finish. There's only one way you're ever going to face your failure, and there's only one way I'm ever going to face my failure. Is if I've had that same experience that Peter had from saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, to knowing the character of Jesus to where I know that I can get to him as fast as I can. No one will face their failure if it's added shame and sorrow. No one will face their failure if the point is to make you feel bad. No one will shape, face their shame and failure if the point is to punish you. That's not what Jesus is up to. Peter knew that. Now it's going to stop him in his tracks here a bit. But this is going to be one of those experiences that Jesus has Peter go through. Not to hurt him, but to take him back so he can go forward. So I just want you to think about it this week. 
Where do you need to go back to? Not, not in terms of failure. We're going to deal with that later. But, but where do you need to go back? Do you need to go back to where God has already led you before? You can see it. You know it. There it is. To find out maybe what the future is. Do, do, do you need to go back to that place where you first started following him because things have gotten kind of fuzzy now? Kind of like me when I was in Louisiana, it got real fuzzy because I got busy. Maybe over this holiday, maybe you could spend some time just going back so you can go forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your patience and kindness and mercy to us is beyond belief. That's why we struggle to believe. Would you help us, guide us, give us insight into the fact that when you have us go back, it's so that we can go forward. And pray that as we have some time off, that we might visit and remember some of these things here for our daily living. We love you and thank you because you first loved us. Now be with us in all that we do that we might find that path from going back to going forward. In Jesus' strong name I pray, amen.